Great. Well, it's good to be together. And uh, this morning we're coming into the last in our series, our current series. And uh, we're going to be reading in a moment from the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 6. And we're going to be reading some verses together. The words will come up on the screen behind me so you'll be able to follow. If you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to follow what I'm reading. And um, the title this morning is Godliness at Work. So let's read what it says in Daniel chapter 6. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read a bit of it. This is what it says. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps, and they're basically officials, were made accountable to these three administrators so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself amongst the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. They were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Sounds a bit harsh, actually, doesn't it? Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king. And basically they force the king to to enact his, uh, uh, his decree. So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And Daniel was lifted from the den. No wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. 
And those who had schemed against Daniel, well, they ended up being thrown into the lion's den themselves. And then the king issues an edict at the end, just declaring that God is great. You know, I don't know about you if you've ever tried to walk, uh, uh, swim against the flow. Maybe you've been uh, caught in the sea and you're trying to swim ashore and the current's against you. I don't know if you've uh, maybe tried to come out of Wembley after a concert or after a football match. And uh, there's, uh, the, the way they take you out of Wembley, or certainly the way they used to, they used to funnel everybody down uh, this, uh, this, this way, this road. And there was no way to, uh, to turn round. And when you did turn round and you tried to go against the flood of people coming... Uh, towards you. It was almost impossible. I remember a moment trying to do it and trying to fight your way through these crowds of people and people were just pushing and keeping going and you were being carried even back with them even though you're trying to go the other way. It was really, really, really difficult. And this morning is the climax of our series Heading Upstream. We've been looking at the first six six chapters of Daniel. Our focus has been, how do we live as followers of Jesus in a postmodern culture? A culture where people no longer believe that truth and reality are found primarily in religion or science. The similarities between the culture of Babylon that we're reading about and 21st century Britain are stark. The emphasis on prosperity on power, on education, and political correctness. And over these weeks, we've seen that we can enjoy embracing the culture that we live in right up until it cuts across our faith in God. Any suggestion that the answer to the state of our nation is in God-centered living provokes a fierce backlash. Daniel reminds us that living for God requires a deep and robust faith. C.H. Spurgeon summarizes the challenge. Alas, much has been done of late to promote the production of dwarfish Christians. Poor, sickly believers turn the church into a hospital rather than an army. Oh, to have a church built up with the deep godliness of people who know the Lord in their very hearts and will seek to follow the Lamb, that's Jesus, wherever he goes. We too need the church to be built up with the deep godliness of people who know the Lord in their very hearts. And that's my prayer this morning, is that you would encounter him as we unpack the Word of God. Duncan Campbell, who experienced the Hebridean revival of the last century, said this, There is a kind of gospel being proclaimed today which conveniently accommodates itself to the spirit of the age and makes no demand for godliness. You see, the Bible encourages us to pursue godliness. Godliness can be seen. You can see it. Godliness is something you don't miss. I remember the minister of the church that I used to be part of in Swansea. I remember uh, uh, meeting him in his 90s. Still, uh, uh, in fact, he was uh, doing a funeral, speaking at a funeral. 
I remember uh, struggling to walk, could hardly see, but he exuded something that was profound. He exuded a godliness. There was something about him, something very godly about the way he behaved. He was a man who had preached all his life, led a church all his life. And then uh, in his 80s, his wife uh, was hospitalized, had dementia. And he used to go every day to see her. And he'd go and visit her and he would sit next to her. And she often didn't recognize him. And he would just sit with her and read scripture to her. And he would sing to her. And he loved her all the way through the years and years and years that she was like that. He exuded godliness. The first believers reminded the people who lived in the city of Antioch so much of Jesus that they mockingly used to call them Christians, Christ-like ones, that's what it means. And the church was delighted with the insult. You see, godliness is the desire to live lives that please God. No wonder that Christians were called followers of the way. Because Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Even though he lived hundreds of years before Jesus, Daniel too was a follower of the way. He knew that the prophet Isaiah had already spoken that there was only one way to draw near to God. He knew that Isaiah had said this. This is what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 35. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there. Nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. You see, Daniel knew that godliness was going God's way. And in chapter 6 of Daniel, we see godliness at work. We see Daniel living a godly life in a culture that has turned its back on God, where God is sidelined. Daniel is a great role model for us in today's world. And Daniel outworks his faith in three contexts. And first of all, we see godliness in public. You see, Darius, who is either the governor or it may have been Cyrus, his throne name, he may have been called Darius, may have had two names, but Darius is establishing the culture of his kingdom. He delegates authority to 120 officials who are to be overseen by three administrators, and one of them is Daniel. The administrator's role was to hold the officials to account, ensuring the king's interests didn't suffer. You know, not much has changed today. People at work are still more likely to look after their own interests than that of their employer. What about us? Do we look after our employer's interests? I remember working in an authority, local government in South Wales many years ago and seeing all sorts of behavior that, that frankly was inappropriate. People looking after their own interests, not after the interests of the council. People who would claim mileage for trips at work. 
But they would so plan out, so they would, uh, might have a trip up the valley, which was the, the furthest distance from the council offices, and they might have two sites to see. And they might do one on a Monday, and they might, might do one on a Friday, just so that they could claim mileage twice, rather than do it in one trip. Those sort of things are rife in our society where people are looking after number one, looking after their own interests. What about us? You see, Daniel was cut from a different cloth. His faith stood out. He so distinguished himself in his work that Darius planned to set him over the entire kingdom. We're told Daniel was trustworthy. He wasn't corrupt or negligent in his work. What a commendation. Would the people that we work with or the people that we mix with in our community, would they say that of us? Can we be relied on to be honest and truthful? I was talking to someone earlier this week and uh, we were talking about uh, a situation and someone had said to this person, this is what they'd said, they'd said, uh, uh, you didn't ask me the right question. This person's going, what do you mean? I, I've got to ask you the right question before you're authentic with me and before you're honest with me. And the point was this, that, that uh, uh, in talking to one another and share, this person was sharing his life, the other person would say nothing unless you asked him the right question. Are we like that? People got to ask us the right question before we're honest and open. Our oh, way well, didn't. They didn't ask me that. Yeah, but that's not quite the point, is it? No, they, well, they, didn't, they didn't ask me that specific question, so I didn't lie. Yeah, but you didn't tell the truth either. Daniels always did what he said he would do. He was not negligent. You see, what we see here is suddenly Daniel finds that people who were thought were with him are against him. Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was lying in bed, and um, Annie is behind me, just about to go to sleep. And uh, uh, I have to explain the context first, okay? So the context is this, okay? So Annie has been concerned about, the, uh, about uh, what I'm, how I'm working at the moment, perhaps working a little too hard, and so that's the context. And so as I'm going to sleep, just about to fall to sleep, this voice from behind me says this. I'm watching you. <laughs> it's the most chilling thing <laughs> I've heard in a long time. It was like something from The Shining. So she doesn't remember it, fell asleep. I'm like there thinking, oh my word. She's watching me. <laughs> and Daniel finds himself in a moment where suddenly people around him are, we're watching you. We're watching you. We're, we've got our eye on you. You see, they weren't bothered about Daniel until it impacts them personally. Suddenly, Daniel's going to get promoted. The green-eyed monster of envy appears. Birds of a feather flock together. And these officials corporately look to find a way to undermine Daniel. 
They're looking to see how he does his job. They're trying to find something negligent, something to be able to go back to the king and say, hey, that man, you're going to promote him? Don't do it. He's not worth it. Look what he's doing. But they could find nothing. Suddenly they realize they're going to have to play the religious card, the politically correct card. I've had that happen to friends of mine. Friends of mine are just about to get a significant promotion, really uh, well-liked seemingly by those around them. Suddenly they're going to be promoted to a very senior position, and one or two people start saying, well, you know, they're Christians. Is it appropriate to have them in that position? You know what their views are on these sorts of things. And suddenly, people start whispering, doing exactly what they did to Daniel all those years ago. You see, when God is doing something new, it often brings out things under the surface in people's hearts. You see, when the tide comes in, and uh, we believe that we're in a season at the moment where God is moving amongst us, the tide is coming in, the tide is starting to rise, and oh, it's, it's quite exciting. But as that happens, what starts to happen is that stuff that's on the floor, bottom of the creek, starts to come up as well, floats to the surface. Things that were uh, of no, not impacting anyone, suddenly they come to the surface. Suddenly things come out of people's hearts, They think, where did that come from? What's going on here? And that's what was happening with these men. God is on the move. God is doing something. And suddenly things get provoked in people's hearts. See, that can happen in our hearts as well. You see, there's a a perverse hatred against godliness that's like a thread that runs through the Bible. We see it with Cain who hates his brother Abel, Joseph, who's hated by his brothers, David, by King Saul. But all of them pale into insignificance when we see how Jesus Christ was ill-treated and how he responded. Daniel's reaction was exemplary. He just gets on with the job. Paul reminds us that our focus should not be on people who maybe give us a hard time but on the spiritual forces behind that provoke that sort of antagonism. You see, behind it all, there's an enemy, the devil, who actively hates God and all God's people. Paul put, uh, sorry, Peter puts it graphically like this. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I want to encourage you this morning. If you're finding it difficult in the workplace, don't look at the people. Don't focus on the people. But focus on behind. What's happening behind? Be like Daniel. Be someone like Daniel who can quietly get on with his work and trust God to see him through. You see, we see godliness in public, but we also see godliness in private. The kings tricked into issuing an edict that anyone prays to any god or man during the 30-day period except himself should be thrown to the lions. It's a trap, of course. And Daniel is caught by the king's pride and could do nothing about it. You see, the truth is the devil doesn't fight by the Queensbury rules. So when we're down, the devil doesn't go, oh, old chap, why don't, you, why don't you get up? 
I can see you're having a difficult time. Why don't you go and take a rest for a moment and then we'll, we'll re-engage in, in the boxing match. That's right, keep your guard up. And, uh, oh, did I, did I, oh, be careful. The devil will kick you when you're down. He will look for any opportunity to make life miserable for you. He doesn't fight fair. He's no gentleman. The devil hates you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And he will do whatever he can to get you to compromise. The trap is subtle. That's why Paul says to the Ephesians, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. And that is what Daniel did. He stood and kept standing. You see... The devil wants us to compromise. Jesus was tempted to compromise in the wilderness. And the devil, after Jesus resisted him, it says the devil left him, but went away and waited for an opportune time. You see, the devil doesn't give up. We mustn't be unaware of his devices. If we leave a door half open, he will come in like a flood, Isaiah tells us. He sometimes leaves our compromise covered up for years to expose it at the most damaging moment. He is cruel, he is hateful, and he will do whatever he can to destroy you. You can never let your guard down. Daniel knows he's going to be promoted. He only has to make some changes for 30 days. 30 days. Surely that would be okay. He'd be able to do so much more good if he got the promotion. The compromise was subtle. This sort of compromise never bears good fruit. And Daniel was under no illusions to what was going on. He went home and he did what he always did. He prayed. It was William Carey, the early 19th 19th century missionary to India, who said, prayer, secret, fervent, believing prayer, lies at the root of all personal godliness. Daniel was not going to compromise. So three times a day, with the windows open towards Jerusalem, he prayed. Anyone could see into his private world. The window was open. He was the same man in public and in private. He got on his knees and he gave thanks to God. And these officials, as they expected, found him praying and asking God for help. You see, he wasn't prepared to set aside his relationship with God for anything. So what about us? What are we like in private? Are the windows open into our private life? Could anybody look at our finances? What about what we watch on TV? Could anybody walk into our front room, whatever we're watching? What about when we're on the internet or on our phones? Could anybody be standing over our shoulder watching what we're doing, what we're looking at? What about our relationships behind closed doors? 
the way we speak to others, the way we speak, treat other people. Could anybody hear it? Would they be delighted? Would, they be, would we be comfortable with them seeing it and hearing it? What about our conversations, the things we say on the phone, the way we speak to other people? Is the window open into our private life? Tim Challies, in his book, The Next Story, says of Admiral Lord Nelson that his men, he talked about his men, to his men about being beyond Gibraltar. Because once they went beyond Gibraltar, he said, every man is a bachelor. What happens beyond Gibraltar, no one knows about. What happens on tour, stays on tour. That was the motto. We live in a world a little like that. You see, visibility brings accountability. Is the window open into your private world? Who are you accountable to? Daniel understood this. Godliness in private. Finally, we see godliness in persecution. Daniel's opponents smugly went back to the king. They'd caught their man. Daniel is about to be thrown to the lions. And here, in this, these few verses, more than anywhere else do we see Daniel as a type of Christ. We see, uh, in his life, we see glimpses of Jesus Christ, the example of Jesus Christ. Although he lived years and years before Jesus We see a foreshadowing of what was going to happen when Jesus came to earth. Daniel, like Jesus, was innocent of any wrongdoing. Daniel had proved himself godly throughout. Daniel's rescue from death is a foreshadowing of the resurrection. And if Daniel is a type of Christ, then the lions remind us of whom the devil, uh, uh, of the devil, whom Peter says is like a roaring lion, seeking out whom he can devour. You see, Jesus tells his followers, tells us this morning that if we're going to live godly lives, then we are promised persecution. You see, behind the scenes there is a malevolent force at work who wants to do us harm, and in the midst of all that's happening. Daniel says nothing. He can't do anything to avoid the calamity. He doesn't plead for mercy before the king. He quietly accepts his fate and trusts himself into the hands of Almighty God. I was, Annie and I were with uh, Mina uh, in hospital this week, in fact, on Friday. And Mina, as you know, is. She's got cancer, and and if there's not a miracle, she'll go to be with the Lord. And we were with her, praying with her. I want to tell you, there was godliness in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of suffering. The way she spoke, the way she talked about her faith. Godliness in the midst of all that was happening. Daniel is silent before his accusers, just like Jesus Jesus said nothing, was quiet. Not everyone out there is bad, but only God sets us free. 
You see, the king wants to see Daniel set free. He's looking for any way to do it. And uh, Daniel's enemies remind the king of his oath. And they are out to stop him wriggling, trying to find a way out to save Daniel. Daniel had, a, uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel had uh, the favor of the king of Darius. And eventually the king had to let go. He had to leave Daniel in God's hands. And whilst the king was perturbed, Daniel wasn't. Daniel calmly went to his fate, just like Jesus. You see, Pilate did everything he, he, he could do to get Jesus released. This man is innocent, he said. And the religious leaders of the day had to lean on Pilate to get their own way. And yet through it all, Jesus calmly accepted his fate because he knew God was his father working out his purposes. Jesus was saying, I will trust in God. Daniel is thrown into what was intended to be his tomb. A stone was rolled over the entrance. The king's seal was placed on it, meaning it couldn't be opened. It was no doubt it was going to be guarded. Darius couldn't save Daniel, only God could just like Jesus. He was taken from the cross and his body was laid in a tomb with a large stone rolled in front of the entrance. The stone was then sealed and guarded. There was no way out. The lions were unable to touch Daniel. God shut their mouths. Daniel was delivered from the power of death, just like Jesus. Jesus, our spotless sacrifice, who John says is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus died for us but was raised from the dead. Listen to this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Wow. When Jesus rose from the dead... The devil was silenced forever and his doom was sealed. The king, having seen Daniel thrown into the den, didn't eat. eat. He had no entertainment, didn't sleep. In, in the morning, he hurries to the tomb, just like those women, those followers of Jesus on that first Sunday, Easter Sunday, run to the tomb to find Jesus' body. Daniel hears the voice of the king calling out, hopefully, Daniel, are you okay? Has God saved you? Has your God saved you? And Daniel replies, oh, king, live forever. God sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. God sent an angel. Most old commentators believe that that angel was Christ himself, uh, an appearance of Jesus before he was born, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus coming and doing for Daniel what he was going to do for all men and women when he went to the cross and rose from the dead. Daniel points us to one far greater that comes after him, Jesus. 
Darius, after seeing Daniel's rescue, worships God. The king worships God. He talks about the living God, the one who rescues and saves. One greater than Daniel has risen from the dead. His death and resurrection demand a response. Maybe this morning you've come here and you've never taken that step of giving your life to Jesus Christ. Well, you can do that today. You can, like the king in the story, you can acknowledge that God is the living God, the one who rescues and saves because of what Jesus has done. This is what Paul says at the end of his life. Listen to this. This is probably the last thing that Paul writes in before he's executed. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. This is what it says. At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew that whether he lived or died... He was a winner. He knew that one day he would be with the Lord Jesus forever. He would be in his presence forever. And so whatever we're going through, whatever difficult times, however hard persecution is, however badly people treat us, we are just pilgrims passing through this world looking to a better world. And even though everyone else may abandon us, there is one who promises he will always stand at our side. I will never leave you or forsake you. He promises to never leave us, to be with us. And so whatever happens, we know that he will bring us into his Father's presence to be with God forever. God our Father. That can be yours today if you've not experienced it. And if you're going through difficult times, know this. Jesus stands alongside you. Even if it doesn't feel like it, I want to tell you, he stands alongside you. He never lets you go. God loves us. God loves each one of us. Each one of you this morning, God loves. How great is the love that God has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. How incredible is that? The message of Daniel is this, that that we can, if we give our lives to him and live godly lives, he is with us. It's not about we're earning something, but he loves to be with his people. Sometimes we don't get it right. Sometimes we make mistakes. Daniel wasn't perfect, but God was with him. God is with you. If you have given your life to him, God is with you. Our response to the love of God should be to live lives that please him. Not because we're earning anything, because we receive all of this by grace. But we do it because we love him. Jesus has brought us into a relationship with the living God so that having received such grace, we should make it our aim to please him. 
The challenge is, he wants us to walk in the light. He wants us in public to live godly lives, lives that please him. But he wants us to do it in private as well. And this is a moment today where we can put some of those things right. Maybe you feel that the window's not been open into your private life. God says, that's okay. Just put it right. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. That's what the Bible says. And we're going to, in this moment now, we're going to break bread. The musicians are going to come out and we will sing a song to finish. But first of all, we're going to remember Jesus. We're going to remember this Jesus who gave himself for us. Daniel was just a type, was a prefiguring. He was like a, it's an Old Testament shadow of what was about to gloriously happen in the New Testament. And as we see in his life, there is an element of a resurrection where he's brought out of the den. But there is one who is a greater Daniel, Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years ago, he went to the cross and bought our wrongdoing. What the Bible calls our sin. The things that we do in secret that nobody sees. The things in our hearts that nobody else sees. God sees our hearts. The things we do in public that are damaging to others when we don't get it right and we mess up. Jesus went to the cross and God punished him instead of us. That's the message of the Bible. And he punished him that we might be able to be forgiven, that God forgives us because Jesus has taken the punishment. He's our substitute. And so as we break bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us in our place. As we drink this wine, we're remembering Jesus' blood that's been shed for us. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And as we take this bread and wine, we remember that Jesus took our punishment and that we can come into the presence of Almighty God and know Him as a Father. And so that's what we're going to do in a moment. We're going to come and take bread and wine and whether you want to pray by yourself. Maybe there's some things that you need to deal with by yourself before God. Things you need to put right with Him. Maybe there's things you need to put right with other people. Maybe you want to pray by yourself. Maybe you want to pray with your family. Maybe you want to pray with a friend. That's absolutely fine. Maybe this morning you want to take that first step of coming to know Jesus Christ. Well, this is a great way to do it. Take the bread and wine and say, Jesus, I believe you died for me. And if you do that for the first time this morning, come and tell me at the end that that's what you've done because I'd love to pray for you. But if you don't know Jesus, just let this moment pass by because this is a moment of thanksgiving of joy of gratitude for what he's done for us this is a moment of response where we respond to him and say Jesus thank you that I am godly because of what you've done for me I've messed up but you sorted it out you died for me so let's come and take bread and wine let's honour him let's seek, thank him for what he's done want to pray for one another you can and then we're going to finish with a song in a moment or two